Uh, if we put up the first picture, does anybody know what this is? You can shout it out, it's okay. A fort could be a tomb. You guys aren't going to guess this. Okay, okay. It could be an alien residence, yep. <laughs> it's a residence for something. This is a structure known as a ducot, which is a Scottish word for the place where pigeons live. A dove cot, like a bed for doves. Um, so this particular ducot, though, is in a place called Lochend Park in Edinburgh, Scotland. And although for hundreds of years it was used to, for a, like a, a home for doves, during the mid-1600s, it was known by another name called Kiln Acre. A kiln is something where um, things are burned in. And it was known as Kiln Acre because in the mid-1600s, the Black Death came to Scotland. There had been a huge outbreak a few hundred years earlier that had killed about half of the population of Europe. But a few hundred years later, it came back to Scotland and it killed about half the population in that area. And this ducot, which normally housed doves, became a place where the clothes and belongings of people who had died in the Black Death were burned. Now, if you're not familiar with the Black Death, also known as the bubonic plague, let me fill you in a little bit, a little bit of science class today. So the bubonic plague was a disease that's introduced through insects, like fleas, things like that, and it attacks your lymph nodes. And so one of the most famous symptoms of the bubonic plague is these giant growths that would happen on all of your lymph nodes. And it would grow and swell to the point where it was very painful. And eventually, you would have... That's my daughter. <laughs> eventually, it would get to the point where your skin would get gangrenous, where the circulation would be cut off, and the, the, the part of your body that's affected would turn black and slowly die. That's the, hence the name, the Black Death. Your chances of surviving if you got this disease were not good. And it was only a matter of time before you died a painful death. This is the inspirational content you came here for today, right? <laughs> I hope I'm doing a good job inspiring you with this. Um, we'll come back to the ducot in a little while. But I want to focus on the idea of the bubonic plague or a plague in general. Because I think this is the perfect analogy for the picture of humanity that Paul gives in the passage we're going to look at today. In this passage, Paul is describing the way that Gentiles live. And if you're not familiar with that word, a Gentile is just somebody who is non-Jewish. So basically the whole world, except for the Jewish population. And he's describing the way that they live. And we're going to get to the passage in a minute. Maybe you can, you can turn to it if you want to now. It's from Ephesians chapter 4, starting in verse 17. It'll be up on the screen, but I just want to give us a little bit of a preface before we get to the actual passage. Because I think when we read passages like this, 
it's really easy to think of it in abstract terms, to keep it at arm's length and not really deal with it as the way that it was meant to be dealt with. And I think we often live in one of two worlds when we look at this passage. The first world is to look at this description and assume that it does not apply to us. We just think of other people that we know, maybe like the worst people or we imagine really bad people, and we think that this doesn't apply to us, that we can't relate to this at all. And the second world that we can live in is one that looks at this description and thinks that it's ridiculously pessimistic or judgmental. It's kind of like describing something that's a lot worse than it actually is. That life is actually not like this. Life is way better than what Paul is describing here. It's kind of like uh, when I was a kid, I assumed that my life would have a lot more quicksand in it than it does. Uh, I remember reading books that would teach you how to escape quicksand if you ever got caught in quicksand. And many of the characters in the books that I read would fall into quicksand. And now that I am 27, almost 28 years old, there is an astounding lack of quicksand (laughs) in my life. And so I think sometimes we can look at this passage and think about it in those terms. Something that's overplayed, that's overly pessimistic or judgmental. And whichever one of these two worlds that you fall into today, I want to try and bring it home for you where what's actually happening here is that Paul is really incisively diagnosing the lives of a very affluent and educated society. And we can bring it home because we live in a very affluent and educated society. And actually, his commentary here is so incisive into our lives that I think we will all be able to relate once it's done. So I want to paint this, we'll we'll get to the passage now, I want to paint this in terms of symptoms. If you think of this metaphorically like a plague, let's look at some of the symptoms that are described in this plague. So here it is, I'll read the passage and then we'll get into it. He says, so I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord, that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do. Remember, Gentiles are anyone who is not Jewish in this context in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity and they are full of greed. Let's take a look at the first symptom here and see if these, any of these sound familiar to you. The first one is futile thinking. It says that they um, live in the futility of their thinking. Now, the word that's actually used here, it's one word, and it literally means thinking in a way that is worthless. Not that these people are worthless or that their brains don't function, But whatever they set their mind on ultimately comes to nothing. Whatever they spend their days and their weeks focusing on ends up meaning nothing. 
in the long run. When we walk in worthlessness of mind, maybe we might act in these ways. It might be somebody who listens to self-help podcasts that say ridiculous things, but we want transcendence. And so we sink time and money into something that ultimately leads to nothing. It might be people who spend hours following influencers online because they dangle the life they want in front of them like a carrot. But ultimately, that life will never come true because it's not even real. These people might be on a treadmill of just waiting for the next Amazon package to show up because this next one is going to bring you joy and fulfillment. These people believe conspiracy theories because they want to feel important or connected. But it just makes them, it ends up making them more unhinged from reality and estranged from those close to them. That's futility of thinking. It's when these people really get a moment of clarity and they realize their entire formula for making decisions in life is boiled down to how can I get more comfortable and how can I have more control in life. Can you relate to any of this? I know I can. The next symptom that we'll look at is he says that they have a darkened mind. They're darkened in their understanding. What this means is that this is just the opposite of seeing the light at the end of the tunnel. This is continuing to constrict your vision to one thing in front of you. Whether it's Um, how to get the most pleasure out of what's in front of you or focusing only on your own pain or your own anger or your own lust. And you just keep getting down and down and what you could see before you can't see anymore. A third symptom is that these people are separated from the life of God. We believe that God is the source of all life. And so people who are separated from God are separated from that life. If God is the power source, we've been unplugged and our battery is slowly running out. So we see this in people who maybe start to realize that everything they touch slowly starts to devolve, whether it's marriages Friendships, their fresh ideas and inspirations on how to be a better person ends up devolving over time. Maybe external things are going great. They have a lot of money, status. Maybe they're really attractive to other people. But they just have this sense that something is slowly slipping away. That things are getting darker and they just keep fumbling around for a way to make it stop because they've been told... That even though, even though they've been told that humans have no limitations and we can do whatever we want with the right combination of money, dedication, and inspiration, that maybe they're the only ones that that doesn't apply to. It's this image that we have in our head, the hope that we have for what will happen in the next five or 10 or 15 years keeps not coming true. And they start to wonder, Maybe this is the most satisfied I'll ever be in life. Can you relate to this? I know I can. The next symptom that we'll talk about 
is that these people have lost all sensitivity that leads to greed and impurity. And this word, sensitivity, it's actually kind of a complex word. I don't know if you've ever seen any words in in languages like Japanese or German that can convey multiple ideas in one word in a way that maybe English really can't. But this word means somebody who who has been so emotionally devastated that they don't care about the consequences of their actions anymore. They've turned off the feeling switch in their mind because feeling is too painful and they're numbing it any way they can. So we see this when we see people who don't care about what kind of gray areas they have to enter into to increase their earnings because earnings are the way they can numb their feelings. We see this in people who don't care about how much they have to pressure or manipulate someone to get what they want from them sexually. We see this when we see people who just don't mind watching darker and darker categories of pornography or increasing or turning to different kinds of drugs to numb what's going on inside of them. They've signed their name at the dotted line of whatever the cost is that's gonna make me feel better and the price is always high. But this just ends up backfiring and hurting them even more. This is a mental, emotional, and spiritual disease. Just keeps slowly disintegrating everything good that is in their lives. I'm asking everyone here today, can you relate to this? I know I can. Now, you may be thinking about this description of somebody, and you may have sympathy for them, and that's good. We'll get to that later. You should have sympathy. But I think it's important to remember that this vicious cycle that people are on hurts others as well. Lynn Kohek, who is a fantastic New Testament scholar, she points out that in the first century, at the time when Paul was writing this, if somebody... Um, wanted to, everything that's pictured here involved vulnerable people. So when somebody wanted to try and satisfy their lust, male and female slaves were sexually abused. When someone wanted to uh, just accumulate more stuff, it came from the homes of the poorest people. There was always a cost. And this, guess what? (laughs) This has not changed over the years. Addictions destroy families and relationships. Lust causes incredible damage to other people, and there are always victims of lust. Our greed contributes in ways that we never would have dreamed of to instability and poverty, both here in the U.S. and all over the world. Hurt people, hurt people, hurt people. And if you think about the description that Paul gives... These are both objects of sympathy and outrage at the same time. Can you relate to this? I know I can. Now this is a, I'm really inspiring you today (laughs) with everything that I've said. I know this is dark and I don't mean to keep harping on this, but one of the reasons that I wanna go into so much detail here is that this is not a game. 
This is our lives and the lives of the people that we care about. But this doesn't have to be our lives. This disease that we have seen, we can leave it behind. You all have already read the verses in Ephesians chapter 2 where it says this, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. This is the gospel. That we can choose to leave this old way of life that we've just been talking about behind. So how does this happen? Well, this is a crucial part of what I want to talk about today. This happens when we intentionally unite our identities to Jesus. And when we do this, we go from death to life, just like he did. As it says in Galatians 2, and the the reference here is uh, wrong. It should say Galatians 2, verse 20, um, if you're taking notes. It says, I, this is Paul writing again, he says, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. He says, again, in Romans chapter 6, he says, don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death so that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. For if we've been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. Anyone who has died has been set free from sin. I want to give you an example of how this works using the most powerful teaching tool I know, which is Play-Doh. So I have two containers of Play-Doh here, and I want you to imagine that this is you. Or more, more specifically, this is us. Everybody who is united with Jesus. And we have this disease that we've been describing, this sickness for which there is no cure. Our body, our body is done for in this scenario. And so our hope is that we can become united, do you see, to Jesus. This is Jesus. Our hope is that we can become united to Jesus so that we leave our old identity behind and we take on his identity. And that means just as Jesus moved from death to life, we can move from death. We can kill off our old self that is riddled with this disease. And we can bring ourselves, that Jesus can bring us to life. 
I can't tell you exactly how this works in terms of our brain chemistry and the pathways of our neurons that change during this unity, but I can tell you that it's real. There is something real that dies, and there is something real that is brought to life when we are united with Jesus. It is possible to live a different life than the one I described earlier. In 2 Corinthians 5, Paul writes this. He says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, in Christ, think about this example. If anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone. The new is here. And in the next section of the passage we'll talk about today, he goes into even more detail. In Ephesians 4, starting in verse 20, he says, that, however, talking about the description that we went into, is not the way of life you learned when you heard about Christ and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught, with regard to your former way of life, to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. We can have our minds reset, remade, into ones that produce hope and joy. We can walk away from all the destructive things we do in order to numb our pain because our minds have been set free to make constructive, life-giving choices. We can find purpose and joy even in the mundane things that we do every single day because we are people who are created to be like God. We can find healing for our broken relationships and fresh opportunities to try again. This is the gospel according to Paul. It's not some abstract sense of a wild person being tamed. It's not being fit into some kind of mold of behavior. It's not behavior modification. It's not even just that we're guilty and our sins are forgiven, although that's part of it. It's an important part of it. But sometimes our view of the gospel is just too small. The gospel is killing off your old way of life and living the life of Jesus instead. Now, one thing that I was really interesting when I was studying this passage that I want to point out to you is in, in the, the reference that we have from uh, the second half of Ephesians, starting in verse 20, it says that you, we learned, uh, we, we were taught, we, we, sorry, the life you learned when you heard about Christ. And that's true, that's a good rendering, but literally what it says in the original language is that you didn't learn Jesus this way. You don't learn, just learn about Jesus you learn Jesus. This is not a classroom where we're graded. This is not behavior modification. We've learned Jesus in a personal, experiential way by being united with him. This is the gospel. Now, let's return to our good friend, the Ducat. You guys remember the Ducat? place where doves were stored, right? And in this particular case, it was a place 
where if somebody got sick and died from the bubonic plague, their clothes would be burned. All that they owned would be burned to keep the infection from spreading. So keeping with our analogy here of some kind of disease or plague, imagine that you lived in 1600 Scotland and you contracted the bubonic plague. But miraculously, you were one of the ones that beat the odds and was healed. Would you then go and grab your old clothes you had when you were sick and and put them on and go about your day? I I hope not. (laughs) You would burn them in the ducat, because that's what it was for back then. And Paul uses the analogy here of something similar, of putting off and putting on clothes to represent our new lives. He's actually playing off of the image of baptism here. So baptism uh, itself is actually a metaphor for death to life. When you're lowered into the water, um, that represented your death. And when you're brought back up, that represents your new life in Jesus. And actually, when people wanted to get baptized around the time of Paul, they would actually take off all of their clothes. And they would go down into the water and be baptized and come back up and receive a new set of clothes. Now, I'm going to demonstrate that for you today. I'm just kidding. (laughs) I'm just seeing if you're paying attention. But this is how baptism was done, because it represented you are made new, and you have new clothes to match. And Paul says in Galatians, he connects it here. He says in Galatians chapter 3, for all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. If you've been united with Jesus, are you living like you've been healed? Are you living like you've taken all those old clothes and burned them in the ducat? I want to give you, as we wrap up, I want to give you some ideas on how you can um, look at your own life and see what kind of clothes you are wearing right now. So one thing that's really interesting is that Paul, throughout the book of Ephesians that you guys have been studying, throughout the book of Ephesians, Paul is primarily addressing Gentiles, people who are not Jews, And he's been talking to them all of this time. So it's really interesting that Paul is talking to Gentiles. And in the first verse of this passage, he says, you must no longer live like the Gentiles do. He's telling the Gentiles, don't live like Gentiles. So I thought we could take that idea and we could say this. To those of us living in Fairfield County, you must no longer live as those in Fairfield County. I have some ideas on how we might be able to do this. If if we want to listen to this, we need to ask, do we spend our time and money to create a bubble of comfort around us while ignoring people in need who live right next to us? Do we allow greed or societal expectations to consume all of our time and energy? Because guess what? Your friends and your family need your time. Do we privately spiral downward into self-destruction while we renovate our house and buy a new car and do all of these things that externally project that we've got it all together? But we really don't. 
You can include your own here. Think about what it means to live where you live as someone who you are, wherever that may be. I mean, I don't live in Fairfield County. I actually live in New Haven County, so none of this applies to me. <laughs> but just kidding. But this is a question we all need to ask. How do we live? And I think Paul would say, you must no longer live as those in Fairfield County do. Now this phrase is a perfect segue into the second point that I want to make in the application here. Because I think it leads into how we view other people. And I've been in church for almost 25 years. And so what I've observed being in a church all of these times is that we often read passages like this that talk about how bad everybody is. And we respond in two main ways. The first main way is anger. We can look around at everyone around us with outrage at how disgusting their behavior is, how perverted and corrupt the world is. And we can have this, we can work ourselves up into this idea of this holy outrage at everyone around us. And if that's something that you think while reading this passage, I just have one question. Have you been listening? This is not behavior modification. Imagine uh, going back to the bubonic plague again. You guys are never going to want to hear about the bubonic plague again by the time we're done. Imagine in this scenario, again, you beat the odds. You've been healed. Imagine if that happened and then you just turned right around and started angrily judging and scorning all the people who were still sick and thinking, oh, how disgusting and vile they are. That would have to be pretty perverted for you to do that. Jesus responds to outrage in a similar way. In Luke chapter 5, there was a huge banquet in Jesus' honor, and it says a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with them. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who belonged to their sect complained to his disciples, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And so, in other words, they're angry that Jesus is associating with all of these gross, disgusting sinners. And Jesus answered them, it is not the healthy who need a doctor but the sick. Jesus did not respond to anyone who needed his help with outrage or indignancy. He responded with compassion and love. And we need to do the same. The second response that you might have as you're reading this passage is not just anger, maybe if not anger, arrogance. We can even really subtly get a sense that, okay, we're the healed ones. We just bumped up a class in the world. We're the ones who have it right. We don't have to live like they do anymore. Ha, ha, ha. Those poor, lost, hurting people. And if that's you thinking this way, I just have one question. Have you been listening? This is not behavior modification. Okay, this is the last time I'll mention the bubonic plague, I promise. Imagine you've been healed again, right? And then you just get real proud of the fact that, okay, I can stand up and walk around and eat solid food again. And you're, you're, you're kind of setting yourself up above those who are still sick. And how ridiculous would that be? If you have a sense of arrogance about your behavior compared to other people who aren't united with Jesus... I would even say this, maybe you don't understand the gospel. 
So when we're confronted with this passage, we have a challenge for ourselves. To those in Fairfield County, you must not live like those in Fairfield County. And we also have a challenge, even if we've accomplished that, to not react to other people who are like, like we were <laughs> with anger or arrogance, but instead compassion and love, realizing that maybe we're not so different. And again, I said before, so uh, I actually want you to think about, like, if, if you're here today, and maybe something that the, in this passage has challenged you, this is what I want to say. Uh, you know, I said before, this is not behavior modification. So if you feel convicted about something in this passage, the solution is not behavior modification. I'm gonna say that one more time. I said before, this is not behavior modification. And so if you're convicted about something in this passage, the answer is not behavior modification. So what is the solution? Well, in Romans chapter 12, Paul writes this. He says, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Now, uh, the word renewing here is, the way that it's, it's translated is good, but it's actually, instead of a verb, it's actually translated, should be translated like a noun. So um, the, the difference is small, but stay with me here for a second. I like the way that the ESV translate this. Translate this. It says, uh, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Do you see the difference? Instead of giving the impression that don't be conformed to the world, but work really hard to renew your mind, don't conform to the world but allow the fact that your mind has been renewed by Jesus to transform your actions. Do you see the difference? So we have a choice to continue wearing the same clothes that we had when we had the, oh, no, I mentioned the bubonic plague again. <laughs> we can continue to wear, wear those same clothes or we can burn them and put on new ones. We don't get our cues on how to live from everyone else around us. Instead, we allow God to transform us based on the renewal that has already happened to us. We live in alignment with that renewal. And then, like Paul says in Romans, you can actually live how God directs you. And you can say with 100% truthfulness, this is the best way. Let's pray. God, I'm so thankful that these are not just words, that these are not just things that we say so that we can uh, create this um, religiosity or spirituality, but this actually represents our lives, that we are actually a lot more like this passage than we may think but that we have been made new in you and that there can be actual real difference in our lives because of the gospel. So I pray for everyone here today. I pray that they would not be discouraged, but instead be encouraged to live in alignment with what has already happened to them. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.